the sermon was a blessing to you all. Um, I tell people a lot when I'm working on sermons and, and really getting into the text, the first person that it affects should be me. I am not absolved from anything that is said in the sermon. I'm, I should be the most affected, the most impacted. And if I'm not, then I'm really just a fraud, right? And so these sermons that we're working on, that we're working through um, together with one another, I hope are going to provide for you the same freedom and the same clarity and understanding of Scripture that it is for me. So today we are talking about the key to emotional freedom, the key to emotional freedom. And I'll be quite candid with you. You probably can't tell this just from me preaching, but I am not the most emotional person in the world, right? I don't know how, how many of you have ever done an Enneagram, but I'm a three on the Enneagram. So the least emotional, are you a three? So yeah, least emotional possible, right? I'm a wing too, so I like to help people a little bit, but not very, not very emotional. So when writing through this, it really required me to, to look with perspective into many of the, the people, you know, I work at a school, I'm the director of spiritual formation at a private school, and it forces me to have all these difficult conversations with a lot of kids your age and some older, some younger, who are dealing with um, emotional issues. And for me to just come from a pseudo-psychological point of view doesn't work because I'm not very in tune with my own. So I'm always rooted in scripture and looking at how when great men and women of God really wrestled with their emotions, how they found freedom in God. So today to do that, we're going to be looking at Psalms 118. We're going to look at one through nine and I know just hearing that, and even when you get to it, you may think, well, this is a little far from our theme about freedom in Christ, but I would actually submit to you that it's right in step with everything that we have already been talking about. Now, before I do begin to get really into the text, I do like to give context to the text here. And so I want you to understand what's happening here, because I think we all know in general, the majority of the Psalms are written by David. Um, but there always is a careful note to let us know that David is a psalmist. But you will note here um, that there is no mention in this Psalter that David is the author. So we can deduce by the context of the writing that it is more than likely somebody who was present during the exile period. Some people have submitted that it is Moses, but it does have some heavy messianic implications as well. Now, it is probably written by Moses, somebody else in the exile, but whomever writes it is very candid and open about their feelings and their despair and their fear and their depression. And it seems like they are very intentional to not reaffirm themselves in the, com the, the current situation that they're in, but to reaffirm themselves in the truths about God. Now, we live in a world, and we kind of talked about this yesterday, but we live in a world that is promoting for us the promise of freedom and liberation, but in turn, the only thing they have provided for us is more imprisonment to quasi-psychological identity politics and flawed racial theories. And in their attempt to provide freedom for all people and provide the equality of outcome for all people, what they have done is utterly imprison all people. 
And so what we want to do today is, one, free you from the myths of everything that you hear about the world, hear from the world in terms of freedom, thinking they can provide it for you. They cannot. I don't care what degrees they have. If it does not come from a biblical perspective, it is a lie from Satan. Okay. And so what we want to do today is look for any of you who is struggling, who have struggled or will struggle with your emotions, with feelings of despair or depression to see how we find freedom through the word of God. So let's look at our text. Psalm 118.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph to those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, one more time for the word of God. We just thank you that you're going to provide today for us, God, clarity in um, how you have provided for us emotional freedom, God. And that freedom only happens when we are totally dependent and leaning and casting our cares and our desires and our hearts and our beliefs totally on you. God, through this word today, just give us the channel that we need to be free in our minds, in our spirits, in our hearts. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the biggest issues in the world's pattern for how one should overcome personal dissatisfaction and unhappiness is that they believe that one should actually think more about oneself. This is the great myth of the world, right? We need more self-esteem because we're so insecure. We have such a terrible body image and we need to find freedom in who we are. And one of the things that they've done is like you should have body positivity. You should feel good about yourself. You should care only about what makes you happy. But there's this thing in the way that God created us that he has not created us just for ourselves to ourselves. And so the exact thing that the world convinces us that we need is the the exact thing that the world allows to create this prison for us, by which it separates us from the people that we should be cohabitating sometimes with and, and even having fellowship with in the word of God. But then we're convinced if anybody intrudes on my personal freedom, that person is not a friend of mine, but that person is an enemy of mine. And so what has happened in our desire to be free, we've become the great isolationists, thinking that freedom comes through great introspection and and building oneself up. But many of us will know that if there is no person right at the end of the day, at the end of our lives to validate the life that we have lived because we've been great isolationists, If there is no greater moral judge than oneself, then we're going to look up at the judgment seat. There will be no one to render a verdict for us, good or bad, and the end result of our life will be misery. 
Because yesterday I mentioned that we are always incredibly influenced by others no matter how much we try not to be. And the issue with that is if you think you will ever get to some point of freedom that you don't need to live according to the standards of anybody else, nay, the standards of God, then what you're going to realize is at the end of your life, you're going to want to know if you did a good job or a bad job and there will be no one but you to render a verdict for your life. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians is beautiful. He says, and not in a way to escape the righteousness of God. In, in fact, in a way to bring the righteousness of God. He says, what other people think about me means very little to me. Now, some of us use that as an excuse to do whatever we want to do, but that's not what Paul is doing. He says, but by the way, what I think about me doesn't even matter because I'm not the judge of my life. He says, it is only what God thinks about me at the end of the day, at the end of my life, that will matter. So freedom, emotional freedom, will not come from just freeing yourself from one another. It will come knowing that nobody, no matter what they think of you, good or bad, will be able to render a judgment for your life. But this is the greater level of freedom and where it requires just a little bit more accountability. You will not be able to render a verdict for your life, no matter how great of a person you think you are. So building oneself up and one's self-esteem is not the key to emotional freedom. I mentioned yesterday that you are the most medicated generation, but it happens to be quite ironic because this is exactly what the world is telling you. It has pushed you more into medication. It has pushed you more into codependence on things that are probably found rooted in the truth of God. And so your happiness is not dependent on whether, whether or not you take your medication for the day. Whether or not you had your caffeine for the day. Whether or not he or she is in a good mood today. And so you ride this roller coaster of inconsistency because there is no constant, there is no anchor, there is no morality, there is no judge, there is no God by which you are living your life. Now I know you're thinking, all right, Brandon, I hear all this. We get it. The world is terrible. Yes. Good job. The world is terrible. But what can we find in the word specifically that will give us the freedom that we need? Because I don't know about you, Brandon, but I'm struggling in despair, in anxiety, in depression. And I have been wrestling and struggling with this for a while and I need desperately freedom. Well, one, you're not alone. Great men in the Bible, great women in the Bible struggled with the exact same thing that you're struggling with. See, at the end of 2 Corinthians, one thing that Paul does say after he says that I am not the judge of my own life, he says, but there is this anxiety that I have. That's what he says. There is this anxiety that I have for all the churches. So even Paul admits that he wrestled with anxiety. But I want you to understand that if you have been looking to cure your anxiety, your depression, your despair, and you've been relying on the world's methods, the reason why you have fallen short is because the world falls short. 
There are some points, three of them, in fact, that I want to give today that I think we learn in Scripture that I think are going to provide the window of freedom. And we're going to see it straight from our text. And I don't want these things to be easily forgotten for you because the reason I'm mentioning them is because they kind of get forgotten. The first point to finding freedom is be thankful. Just be thankful. And no, this is not the thankfulness that we sometimes get from our parents and sometimes I lord over my children like I provided for this and I need my obligatory thanks. That's not what I mean here. It means that you should be thankful because you realize that one of the great things that God has done for you is not the house you live in, right? Because that's what we struggle with. Is not the kind of clothes you have. It's not the financial status of your parents or yourself. The great thing that God has done for us is provided for us life. And so we have this tendency when looking to be thankful to start at the thing that we're the least thankful for, right? See, that's the issue with the self-esteem myth. And I call it a myth. Because what the world says is that you need more esteem. That the, the problem is that you don't have any esteem and you need to be esteemed more. But I actually think that the problem is that you have too much self-esteem. Let's think about it. How many of you have ever been walking somewhere and you see people laughing and you think they're mocking you? So, oh, man, they just took a bat to my self-esteem. Well, how arrogant of you to think that they were even talking about you? What about people who are depressed? And I'm not talking about the real medical and biological reasons for depressions. I'm talking about the external reality that leads to depression. And one of the most common keys to depression is I am not getting out of life what I think I deserve. Therefore, I am depressed. Who in the world are you to think that God should provide one iota more of anything than he's already provided? Who are we, Romans 9 says, as the clay to look back at the potter and say, thou hast made me wrong? Or I like what it says in Psalms once David is looking up at the, the expanse of the heavens and, and all that God has created. And he says, but you did all this with your fingertips. And he doesn't feel better about himself, all right? See, when you understand the height and the breadth and the depth and the bigness of who God is, you don't feel better about yourself. You don't feel bigger. You feel infinitely smaller. He looks up and he says, who am I that you are mindful of me? Or that the son of man would even visit me. See, one of the big reasons we struggle with despair is that we don't have too little view of ourselves. We have too big a view of ourselves. And naturally, because you think too highly of yourselves, you think so lowly of God. When God is not seen as he is, as he is described to us in the Bible. Then we become the God of our lives. 
And I think we all know that we are insufficient for that role. So many of us think singularly that I'm not getting out of life what I think I deserve. But this is the thing. We are told constantly in the Bible we, to never think more of ourselves. We are constantly told in the Bible, no, you think of yourself too much. Think less of yourself. You have too high opinion of yourself. Think less of yourself. See, this is one of the beautiful things about Reformed theology and understanding total depravity is that we're all equally depraved. We are all equally fallen and there is not a single person, me included, who is better than anybody else. And so when you look around at people that you think you should look like or be like, you should remember that the external reality has nothing to do with the internal reality for them or you. We are all equally born sinners apart from God. And so because we are always warned to think lower of ourselves, the Bible is warning us that the natural position is that we think more of ourselves than we should. The Bible is, in fact, riddled with verse after verse, text after text, warning us how destructive it is to think more of ourselves than we should. In Philippians 2 and 3, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What about Galatians 6 and 3? For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Philippians 2 and 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why are we constantly reminded that we need to get over ourselves? Because of our own depravity. All we think about people is ourselves. And if you don't testify to that, I will be the testimony for my own sermon. I wake up thinking about me. I go to bed thinking about me. All right. That is my own fallenness. And I'll admit it. But see, the thing that happens is when you constantly think about yourself, it will always lead you down a road, a path to ungratefulness. The psalmist here opens up not with all the things that he believed God should have done, but he begins with a declaration of the nature of God. The reason this connects so well with the Israelites is because they were delivered out of captivity. That which they prayed for while wandering in the wilderness, they began to complain about everything. How many of us have been in the same situation where the thing we so desperately fasted and prayed to God about then became the thorn in our flesh and we forgot that we had prayed to God about it at all. For the adults in the room, how many of us have prayed and asked God for a job and how many weeks into the job do you remember? Oh wait, a job is a job. 
And it's only good when I'm not actually working it. <laughs> Thank you. The issue that happens with the Israelites in the wilderness, though, when they begin to complain and even vie to go back to captivity, is that freedom didn't quite look the way they thought it would. And while they're escaping, they think they deserve more. And it so bred such an ungratefulness and discontentment with life. And it happens with us. The Bible tells us that we are to be thankful, not for everything. It does not say that. It says to be thankful in everything. For this is the will of God concerning you through Christ Jesus. And it's just as simple as this. Everything I have been given. This is going to sound like a paradox, but it's not intended to be. Everything I have been given is both more and less than I deserve. Everything I have been given is both more and less than I deserve. Let me explain. The common grace of God has provided for all of us things well beyond we deserve. Every single one of us in this room is living above our privilege. And I don't mean your earthly privilege. I mean your spiritual privilege. God has allowed every single one of us the life that he has allowed us to have. And it does not matter the quality of that life, the quality of that life, whether you are a quadriplegic, whether you have all your limbs or none of them, that is already more than what you deserve. That is the truth. But the other side of that is because of the mercy of God, every single one of us deserves eternal damnation in hell. And he has saved us so sweetly and sovereignly from that penalty. And so it does amaze me, I think, that we can get in such despair because I think we lose perspective. Now, how do we remain thankful? Well, that's how. You keep that perspective. God, I could complain about my life. I could complain about where I am. But any complaint I make is an assault on the nature of God. Because you have provided everything that I want to complain about. A life I did not render for myself, one that I did not deserve. In your infinite wisdom, God, you have provided this life to me beyond any merit on my part. Therefore, I'm thankful. Point number two. First one is be thankful. The second is have a good memory. Have a good memory. One of the beautiful things about this text, which I think is seen clearly, is that the psalmist addresses how he feels about God presently by actively remember what God had done in the past. For us, I think there is a need for a healthy and blessed self-forgetfulness, which causes us to get over ourselves. But we also do need to remember a few things. One We need to remember what God has done, 
And two, we need to remember that everything that God does is a product of his nature. His confidence in God freeing him from despondency and despair was that he knew who God had already been in his life. He says, out of my distress, my my distress, I called. He answered. He set me free. Therefore, I will not fear. That's it. God's track record of faithfulness should be even more expansive for us than it was for him because we have the fully realized canon of God. In 66 books, we see the faithfulness of God throughout many generations, including our own lives. And all we have to do if our memory fails us is crack open this book and remember what God has done. That's it. Because we are sinners by nature and because we are constantly wrestling with our flesh, then we don't often start with the things that God has been in our lives. We typically start with the deficiency of our lives. We go right to the things that didn't work. And when we face situations, we are made fearful because we don't know. One of the most difficult concepts, I've mentioned this before, but in Reformed theology, is that concept, the truth, that God is sovereign. Now, if you truly understand what it means to know that God is sovereign, that means if I'm afflicted with cancer, God is sovereign. And that if I, even if I die for me, To live is Christ, and even death would be gain. Or if I live and I survive it, that it will be to the glory of God, and if I die, it'll be to the glory of God. But see, the issue that many people have with the sovereignty of God is not that God is in control of the good things. That means they know God is also in control of the bad things. And because we are so self-centered, we would rather just be in control of our own lives, of the good and the bad. Because if I'm in control of the good, then I'm the reason it happened. And if I'm in control of the bad, then I just need to tinker with my life a little bit and have some understanding, do something different so I can get a better result. But that's not the way the sovereignty of God works. God does everything for his glory, regardless of our wills. God not only resists, but he overcomes our wills to accomplish his will. That is who God is. Now, that should provide most of us comfort, but many people it does not provide comfort for. Because they want to be in control of their own lives. And because of that, there is this great anxiousness and despair when anything goes right or wrong. Because if you don't think God is control of it, then you don't know why it's happening. Your life just becomes the luck of the draw. And that has to be the most miserable way to live. 
that if I have a good day, then I just lucked up and had one. And if I have a bad day, well, I'll try again tomorrow. But this is the thing. James says that the only way that we can meet our trials with joy is that we know that they are producing in our lives a faithfulness and a steadfastness in our lives that will cause us to be more dependent, to trust God more than we did before. When I firmly believe that God, not I, is responsible for all that happens, then it should create in me a peace and a contentment. Because whatever God is causing to happen in my life, both good and bad, is to make me look infinitely more like him and less like me. To conform me into the image of my Savior, because quite frankly, I'm just too much like me. That's why I need good and bad things to happen. And I need God to be in control of it. Now, some people say, yeah, but if that's the case, you don't know why it's happening. Of course you do. You don't know why it's happening because you don't read the word. First Peter one and six. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through our trials. God cleanses us through our trials. God purifies us. He strips off everything that is unlike him. So why is that significant? If you're struggling with despair and depression. This is how you face them with joy and not despair. When something unfortunate happens, we can look to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and anticipate, hopefully, how he will conform us through this even more into his image. Final point. Simple. Trust in God alone. Trust in God alone. The psalmist acts here, knowing that God is supreme in his life. What can man do to me? It is better to trust in God than to trust in man. Knowing God was the epitome of his hope in life. But not only that, he also firmly believes that the only way he can make it through life, both spiritually and emotionally, is that he trusts not in himself, not in his circumstances, but in God, who is the author of life. Listen, if you want freedom from stress, from depression, from anxiety, then you need to have a right view of the God of the Bible. You need to have a 
right view of the God of the Bible. Now, I don't I won't make some unheard or unheralded promise which says that he died for those things. You know, a lot of those I call them the heretical teachers. I won't name them by names, but. A lot of the heretical teachers say, God died for your depression. He died for your anxiety. He, no, he didn't. <laughs> he died for your sins. Amen. Jeez. Like that may be the result of your sin, but that ain't what he died for. He died for your sins. But I will certainly tell you like this. That if those things the anxiety you feel, the despair you feel, the depression you feel, if that is the byproduct of sin in your life, then salvation will heal that. Salvation will free you from that. Having a right view and a right understanding of God. I mentioned at the beginning that I'm a type three. Well, let me just tell you a little bit more about type threes before I sit down. We love being in control. Like, oh yeah, I need to get my little testimony. Like, we love to be in control. And the difficult thing about a person who also passes a church, who also is in a leadership position, is that you realize in life, I ain't got no control of anything. And the peace that has provided for me. Y'all don't know this, so I'm going to give you a little insight. This is, none of this is written here. A few weeks ago, did y'all see those tornadoes that came through Fortendale? Yeah. All right. Did y'all, there was a church, did y'all see it, that got like half the roof ripped off? That was my church. Hey, y'all. How y'all doing? And, like, when that happened, we had, I mean, just everybody, everybody reaching out to me, just, like, checking them, and like, oh, my gosh, Brandon, like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine, okay. <laughs> like, are, like, are you good? Like, is there something I don't know? It's like, oh, I saw the church. It's like, that's so upset. I was like, oh, it's fine. It's like, what do you mean? It's like, the roof got ripped off. I'm like, I ain't had no control of that. And I can't do no roofing work. Like, <laughs> so if I ain't take it off, I ain't putting it back on. <laughs> I'm not in control. I would love to say, oh, I know exactly how to put that. I know it. No, I, I can't do it. Like, God removed it. He'll fix it. Like, I'm content with it. And so people say, man, how's the church doing? There's a hole in the roof. But that's just the building. The church itself is fine. And I don't know what God is planning to do through it, but I can tell you the theme of our church this year was still God. Well, God, thanks. <laughs> but even in this, he has shown us that regardless of what happens, he is still sovereign. He is still on the throne. And that my meaning in life was not in that building. It was not in my ability to preach from the pulpit. It is in him. So let me ask you this, and, and I'm closing. What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you leaning on? 
that is leading you to anxiety and despair? What are you putting more faith in than you're putting in God? That every time it fails you, you go back to your pit of depression. What things in your life do you need to work perfectly in order so that you'll be okay? Because God has a way of disrupting those very things. How are you choosing circumstances over God? If you want to be truly free, then you must be freed from the bonds of worry about things in this earth that are transient and temporal and be completely fulfilled with the eternal, everlasting Father of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you for your glory. God, you are infinite in your wisdom, in your power, in your might. God, so much of our frustration in life is that we don't understand what's happening. But God, our peace and our joy and our contentment cannot come in just what's happening. Lord, it must come from you. God, I know there are people in this room right now who couldn't even focus on this sermon because they were weighed down by things going on in their lives. God, there are no eloquent words I can offer other than they will only find a peace in the word of God. And Lord, there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, and that's the reason why they find no peace and no joy Then God. What a wonderful day this would be for you to sovereignly reveal yourself to them, to open up their blinded eyes, to allow their deaf ears to hear the truth of the gospel. God, in you, in you alone, is everything we need. God, please remind us through the course of this day and the rest of our lives that we are to be thankful. We are to have a good memory. And that we should only put our trust in you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.